Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day savings event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Oh, hi. Hello there. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am that woman who will take literally any excuse to talk about characters like Medea and Cersei. But let's be honest, mostly Medea. I am Liv. (laughs) 
I don't even know what that was. Today, though, we are in for something a little bit different. First, this is a conversation episode, obviously. I spoke with the absolutely lovely Antonia Aluko, who's doing her PhD in witches. But not just witches. Witches and intersectionality in Roman imperial literature. Fancy. But most importantly, it's witches. That's why we're here. And in today's conversation, it's two specific versions of two specific witches, Medea and Circe, as they appear in Ovid's Metamorphoses. And man, Roman witches are fucking wild. The departure from the traditional Greek versions is fascinating. And so when he tries to play around with these Greek witches, but in Roman lit, something magical kind of happens. And Tony and I had so much fun chatting about this. It's absolutely mind-blowing looking at the ways that Ovid changed these well-known characters and the way he turned them into versions that more closely align with the Roman idea of witches, but not completely. And the Romans, they did not like witches. They were not kind to witches. Remember that conversation I had last spooky season with Maxwell Paul? Yeah, like those witches. Weird and gross and, and old. Always old. That's the Roman witchcraft for you. So sit back and enjoy, because what would spooky season even be without a chat about mythological witches? And in this case, a deeply, ridiculously nerdy, so nerdy, chat. Because on a number of occasions, the two of us have a lot of fun and and deeply, nichely dorky realizations. Uh, It was exciting, to say the absolute least. Also, on Tuesday, I plan on giving you all the full rundown on these versions of Medea and Circe in, in more detail. Because frankly, I didn't really realize how different and unique they were until I chatted with Antonia and now I'm obsessed with looking at what exactly makes them so much of a departure from the traditional Greek versions. For now though, listen to this very fun and interesting and straight up witchy conversation. Conversations, which witch is the best witch? Ovid's Medea and Circe with Antonia Luco. Witchcraft, but then it was like intersectionality as well, right? Like, tell me what you yeah. study. It's so exciting. So... Um, just a little general intro about me. Yeah. Um, I'm doing a first year PhD student and I'm doing my PhD at UCL, um, University College London. And my projects on witches and intersectionality, but specifically like the intersectionality of uh, magic use and gender and ethnicity in imperial Latin text. It's a bit Ooh. of a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, but interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what I'm kind of really focused on is kind of viewing witches as intersectional beings in the ancient world, um, especially because of their characterizations, which um, kind of set them off as like a ethnicity within itself. So witchcraft mm. is kind of like its own, it has its own history, its own culture, its own associations and myth. So then witches then in this, in the intersectional context are not only just women who use magic, but also women with their own very specific kind of cultural heritage. And so if we look at witches using intersectional theory kind of like as 
their magic use being an extra layer onto their discrimination in the ancient world. Then we get a very, very specific picture of this kind of overly extreme, very chaotic, very monstrous figure whose, you know, sexuality, age, gender um, and ethnicity all play a part in how she's perceived in the ancient world. So that's kind of like a very general basis of my project. Um, So I'm looking at a variety of different primary texts. Right now, I'm very focused on Ovid. So I'm going to be talking Mm. about him a lot. Um, I'm not going to complain about that. (laughs) (laughs) Our favourite problematic king. Um, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) um, Yeah, I'm really focused on Ovid at the moment. But I have been looking at Seneca earlier on this year. Um, my project, fingers crossed, should um, be talking about um, Apuleius as well and Lucan and Horace. So yeah, like all all over the imperial pe- um, period, but like what connects them is witches, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which, you know, hopefully should be very, very fun. I'm enjoying it so far. So that's really good. <laughs> I mean, witches are super cool. So it just sounds like a great project. So one thing that, that immediately comes up for me as soon as I hear that you're talking about Rome um, is like one, obviously, as you know, I'm not particularly familiar with Rome. Always thrilled to have people on to teach me about Rome, but it just means I don't have like as much of a background myself. But one thing that came up when I last spoke to somebody who talks about Roman witches um, is the thing that stands out for me the most is the difference between Greek and Roman witches. So obviously, I just want to hear you talk generally, but I definitely like that's a thing that's always fascinated me. So I'm curious, kind of, I'm like already bringing it to Greece. That was not my intention. We will talk about <laughs> Rome. But it, it, you know what I mean though? Like the witches in Greek mythology are like Circe and Medea and they're like really powerful and badass. And there's definitely like all the, you know, there's other aspects to them, but they're not like demonized in a way that they seem to be in Rome. So I'm, I'm so fascinated to hear everything you have to say basically around that yeah (laughs) that actually takes up a huge part of what I'm talking about in like the bit I'm writing because the the witches in Ovid are um actually well at least I'm talking on the basis of the metamorphoses which is the Mm -hmm. main text I'm focusing on in terms of and the good one um it's it's a very good one (laughs) (laughs) um but in the metamorphosis the two main witches are Circe and Medea so Mm. we've got these two women who've got a huge legacy behind them in multiple different ancient texts and Ovid takes them and he makes them his own in very specific ways he kind of um takes these you know these figures who have like such a huge history and legacy from Euripides and from Homer and, you know, I think Apollonius as well. So, like, many different texts mm-hmm. here. Like, we've got loads of different, like, reference points for him to use. And he takes them and he makes them into these figures of mon- complete monstrosity. Um, like, we can't even recognise them almost from their Greek heritage because he makes them the absolute extreme. Mm. And it's really interesting how he does that because then if you look at his other texts, for example, the uh, the Amores, um so his love poems um Mm -hmm. and you see the witches in that then it's like there's such similarity so when we move on from like the the greek imagination into the roman one and we see these these witches it's a very much a distinct 
version um, of of the witch and the magic use that we see, which is highly demonized. And I truly believe that it has something, especially at least for the period I'm working on, which is imperial um, Latin literature. So um, we're talking like Augustus onwards. I think it really starts off with the Augustan marriage laws, because if we see that we're, we're seeing laws being put in place that regulate and that kind of put jurisdiction on what a woman's body should be allowed to do. You know, should they be allowed to reproduce who with and when? And then you get these witches in these in the literature who completely disregard that, who say, you know what, to hell with this. I'm going to do what I want. And they're going to use their magic to do exactly what they want, how they want. And one particular witch, like, like I was saying, the Amores, who comes to mind is Dipsas, um, who essentially is this aged woman who, you know, advises of its lover, Corinna, um, to kind of like go for a rich man. And the way he describes her in that text is absolutely insane and you have to put into context this is one of the first encounters i've had with like roman witches because when we see witches especially in the um british education system we just think of you know salem witch trials Mm. we don't actually like think of like oh there was witches before the 1600s what so this is my first encounter of roman witches and i actually like have some of it here this is like the translation from poetry and translation and it's by a.s klein so it's really super accessible, which is why I like them. And it's also the one that I first read. So he says that there's like this certain old woman called Dipsass. And he, he essentially says that she's never sober. Um, she's, <laughs> Perfect <laughs> way to start. <laughs> yeah, he's like, she's never seen, he says, she never seen, she's never seen Dawn with rosy horses, a mother of dark Memnon. So she, she's never seen a sunrise whilst <laughs> yeah. being sober. <laughs> Um, and then she's like, she's she's learned uh, the Magi's tricks and Cersei's Aeon charms. So instantly she's being harkened back to Cersei. So like the reader, like instantly knows, you know what? I'm talking, we're talking about Cersei here. I know exactly the kind of witch. Um, and then he says, she knows what herbs to use, how to whirl the bullroar and the value of slime from mare on heat. When she wants, she can make cloud gather in the sky. When she wants, she brightens the day with a full sun. And if you believe it, <laughs> I've seen stars drip blood, blood red the very face of the moon. I suspect she changes at will in the shadows of night and her old woman's body grows feathers. So <laughs> instantly, <laughs> you've got this woman who's literally the most horrifying thing known to man. <laughs> being described to us and not only that she's can use magic she knows how to use herbs she can draw down the moon and change the way the moon is seen and if you think about how witches are perceived in the greek imagination it's completely different Mm -hmm. it's um you know we go from like you know the delicate witches who help you along your journey and make sure everything's going to be fine and then obviously at the end of medea um of euripides version we get you know, um, a, a, a quite monstrous view of, of her, but nothing to the extent of this. This is a whole new level. Um, and you can instantly see how her age comes into play. It's not mm-hmm. just the fact that she uses magic. It's the fact that she's an old woman. She, you know, can't really, you know, 
she can't really live her life without saying all of this stuff first of all. <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh you know what I'm just gonna advise someone who I really like and it's like nope Ovid's not happy with you and and you get this like perception of her that's oddly quite horrifying yeah I that's the one thing I remember too it, it just as soon as you're saying that is like the Roman witches tend to be more of that kind of idea of like an old crone that really yes. like old and decrepit and like gross like he's they're they're described as like pretty gross whereas yeah in, in greek like for all medea's crimes like she is young and presumably beautiful based on kind of everything that happens around her and the thing about euripides too is like it is bad obviously what she does but like he really gives you reasons to understand her in a way that is al- obviously my favorite thing like i i talk about it near constantly but but like you get it. You're like, yeah, you know, she did these horrific things, but like I wouldn't do it myself, but I can see how she got there. Whereas this witch is like, nah, she's just fucking with shit. Like she's just causing trouble. And that's where like Medea Ovid's Medea really interests me because I a hundred percent like you, I absolutely love Medea, um, especially the Euripides version, because I I read it and I was like, oh my gosh, like I can understand exactly why she did that. Like it yes. was so justified. You know, we hate Jason. You know, screw him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but then we get to Ovid's Medea, and she is um, the most unsympathetic character, um, and I truly believe that it's because he wants to. He wants us not to like her. He doesn't want us to sympathize with Medea in the same way that Euripides does. Um, yeah. And it's really clear because in the beginning of um, of Ovid's telling of Medea and the Metamorphoses of book seven, he spends like, a good hundred lines giving her a soliloquy. Um, and in that, she's essentially saying that she shouldn't love Jason. She shouldn't allow it. You know, this shouldn't be happen. You know, she shouldn't help him with the golden fleece. Um, she's just leave him alone because this is not good and like she's gonna lose her homeland and it's like oh okay cool 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 I understand you know she's saying that she shouldn't go for him and that makes us sort of redeemable because she then resembles you know the girl in his love poetries mm. who kind of you know is just you know umming and ahhing about whether or not she should go for her love and she's relatable and then all of a sudden she starts to help Jason and then she becomes this horrifying character. And it starts as soon as the soliloquy ends. Cupid turns his back on her. He's literally like, you know what? Ooh. I'm washing my hands. I have nothing to do with this girl. You know, it's I, I have nothing to do with her. Like, so she she's basically rejected by Cupid. Um, he t- literally, you think the word he uses is like Turgo. He literally turns his back on mm. her. And then the line after that, she's like, well, I'm going to go to Hecate now. <laughs> since, <laughs> since Cupid won't help. It's like the kind of sense of like, since Cupid won't help me, I'm sure Hecate will. Yeah. Um, and as soon as she does that, it seems like how she's she's picking her magic use through Hecate over her love. Um, so something that's more relatable to the reader of just, you know, falling in love and not show like um, this kind of forbidden love, not sure if I should go for it or not then turns into, oh, I'm just going to use my magic to make everything happen. If the gods won't help me, I'll use my magic. And, you know, that works for a little bit in Ovid until 
you get to the point where she's trying to um, save his father. So I'm never sure how to say his name. It's like Eason. Oh gosh, don't even. I the amount that I hate saying that name because it feels wrong no matter how I say it. So yeah, I'm with you. And also, we can just say Jason's father. (laughs) Jason's father. Um, but yeah, Jason's father, essentially when she's rejuvenating him, so basically like he's about to die when they find, when they eventually get back there, he's about to die. So they're like, oh, you know what? Might as well save him. Um, so Jason begs Medea like, hey, can you just save my dad, please? And, um, she's like, well, Hecate wouldn't allow that. So now we've got Hecate's turning her back on her. So not only is Cupid like, no, I'm washing my hands. Even Hecate is like, "Uh uh-uh, this is not for me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and she still does it she's she's like you know what Hecate won't allow it but I'm gonna do it anyways so we've got this this woman now who not only transcends the gods but also transcends like moral authority and mortal authority because she's eventually as we know she doesn't listen to Jason anyways she doesn't care what Jason thinks eventually because she ends up killing her kids so we end up with this Medea who's neither human nor supernatural but something else and something Mm -hmm. more terrifying because of that so it's almost along the lines of seeing Medea as this fully formed character who we started off with as a young girl falling in love and by the end she is this this thing almost not even like characterized as a person Mm -hmm. um, because of the way that Ovid kind of displaces her from what we thought we knew i love that so uh, i've definitely read the medea sections in in metamorphoses um but it was a while ago now so the only thing that i can remember like really distinctly though and i remember i like like was talking about this once and it's like the thing i know specifically is from ovid and no one else is that moment when she either it's for the potion for jason's father or um or the when she's like about to kill the other king, um, President Peleus, um, with like the, his daughters and everything, like because she rides around like the whole world on her dragon chariot, and it's like the most badass moment of anything ever. Like she goes everywhere, and it's like I'm just riding on my dragons, like just getting whatever potions I need. So I always thought of her as like awesome from that but i'm realizing i don't actually remember any of like the actual characterization of her i just remember her riding around her dragon chariot but that part is also so interesting because when you look at what ovid says while she's traveling she's basically you know lads torturing greece through greece that's literally what's about to happen as she like stops off and goes over all of these places and if you read it like he's actually mentioning places where things of either very disastrous forbidden love ultimate monstrosity or references to other uses of magic occur so um like and some of these references are only found in Ovid either because you know we don't have any you know sources back from from um, the ancient world that tell these stories or because they're his own inventions so he's literally as she's riding around on that chariot he's literally saying you know Look at all of these stories and references I can make up of utter monstrosity and think of Medea because Medea is worse and she's my creation here. 
Um, so it's kind of like comparing and uniting all of those parts of the Mediterranean through her otherness and marginalization. And we get this view of Medea, who is not only, um, you know, at that point, at the height of her monstrosity, literally, because she's like in the sky, but also, (laughs) but also because she's literally like, this is the point where she's murdered multiple people. She's, she's got so much blood on her hands. They're just red now. Um, So we've got this view of Medea. And then we've also got these like little anecdotes here and there, which, which are like stories of, oh, you know, um, oh, you know, do you not remember that story of like this person killing another person? Yeah. Okay, let's move on to the next one. And there's like 30 different references to different people and places um, in that little oh, section. Um, I have to reread this again. Favorite... I'm, I'm like, oh my God, how do I not remember it's this? So fun. I can't wait. I love it. <laughs> it's so, so fun. And um, one of my favorite references um, that he makes throughout the entirety of Medea's story, because there are a lot. <laughs> are the ones to Circe because it kind of links um, book seven and book 14, which funnily enough are seven books apart exactly. So you've got Mm. in two different halves of the Met, you've got one witch for each half and that's almost like it's too much. We can't put any more witches in this this book because that's just too much monstrosity. So you've got these two witches equal distance apart, both Mm. very similar to each other, both the descendants of Helios, both um, able to wield magic, described as ethnically other, described as, you know, kind of close to the gods, but still very, very distant. And you've, you've got them on both halves of these stories, and one very firmly set in Greece, and the other actually quite close to Rome. So mm. the location of Circe in, in Ovid's Met is actually in Sicily. So oh, okay. that itself is trippy. <laughs> yeah, like they're making her Greek by making it like Magna Graeca, but then also like ex- explicitly not. Yes. So it's kind of like this this closeness to Rome, but also mm-hmm. it's it's like okay, it's a farther and us distance that you know we can we can breathe a little bit, but it's still terrifying because it's mm-hmm. like she's no longer in this mythical island that we don't know about. She's in Sicily. <laughs> she can get to us <laughs> and that's the terrifying <laughs> right. thing it's it's so interesting how he does that because like obviously he's guiding us closer and closer towards the end of the book to you know actual history and julius mm-hmm. caesar and augustus but in order to do that he has to get closer to rome he has to get closer to where the reader is and and real life and bring yeah. such a mythical character he's so terrifying so close to Rome really makes those tensions between closeness and farness and marginalization and colonialization really pop. Yeah. So, so, oh my God, I want to hear about so many different things in, in what you've just said. I have lots of questions already, but specifically let's start with, so how does Ovid characterize Cersei? Because I really, I don't think that I read those bits. Like because I've read so much of the Odyssey that I never get around to that. I, I also every once in a while realize that I've literally never read the end of Metamorphoses when he goes into Rome. Like when he starts talking about actual Rome, I'm like, oh, right. I've, I have no idea what any of that says. So I'm fascinated by what he does with Cersei because, yeah, I, I mean, quick ramble. But like Ovid is so interesting in Metamorphoses specifically because he is so explicitly telling Greek stories through a Roman Mm. 
lens that like that alone makes that work so unique. And, and like you're saying too, in like, we often don't have an earlier source and that doesn't mean that he's not working off an earlier source, but if he is, we don't know it. And that in itself is so interesting. Like what did Ovid invent and what is he basing things on that we don't know about? And anyway, that's all to say, please tell me all about Ovid's Cersei. <laughs> oh, she's absolutely glorious. I love Ovid Cersei. I think it's okay this is gonna be a very controversial opinion but I think she's my favorite iteration of Cersei Ooh. Um, just because the stories we get are so explicitly monstrous like it you have to actually read that and then go back to the Odyssey and read it and be like hold on a second what parts did he pick up and what parts did he make himself um yeah so we start off book 14 with Cersei so this is the last book before we hit Rome, which has its own significance in itself. Mm-hmm. So we start off with Cersei and um, the previous book has uh, this this man named Glaucus, who essentially then at the end of book 13 says, you know what, I need help because I'm in love with this girl and I can't, you know, she's not in love with me. She's rejected me. So I'm going to use Cersei's help. So he's running to go find Cersei. And then we find Cersei and boy, does he wish he didn't. Um, (laughs) Because essentially the girl that he is in love with is Scylla. I'm getting flashes to Madeline Miller. I'm just like, oh, I'm like, oh, right. This is where Madeline Miller got all of that. And I'm remembering that so specifically now. Yes. So this is the Scylla who we know as the sea monster who then, you know, is, you know, Homer, Homer warns that Odysseus should not go near. So mm-hmm. that's the Scylla we're talking about. And as we know from the Odyssey, it's never really explained how Scylla got there. It's just mm-hmm. more of like, ah, this is her. Um, <laughs> but, and also we get the origins of Charybdis now. Ooh. So I, I know. love Charybdis so much. <laughs> Me too. I love how it's just kind of like this giant whirlpool. Like, oh, where did it come from? Yeah. No, no, no one knows. No, no. one knows. <laughs> Sentient, but like also just a whirlpool. Oh, it's badass. It's so good. Um, so essentially, he goes goes to Cersei, and Cersei's like, you know what? You know what would be even better revenge instead of like me making you like fall in love with her or making her fall in love with you? Um, I could just you know fall in love with you myself, and you could be like my husband, and it'd be great. So can we just do that? And she, he's like, uh, uh-uh, I don't want this. <laughs> he's like, I did not consent. <laughs> I don't want this. Um, and she's like, hold on a second. Did you just say no? <laughs> and she's furious and she's really pissed off and she's like mm, I'm not happy about this um so I'm gonna do something instead so she goes to the pools where Scylla like you know usually chills and relaxes and she cu- curses the pools with herbs and then Scylla turns into the sea monster and the description is actually her her groin so her genitals turn into like barking dogs (laughs) so she's basically turned her vagina into barking dogs and so that has its own connotations because obviously that means that Glaucus can now no longer have sex with Scylla so that's its own thing and then after all each other you know after she does all of that then Glaucus goes to her and he's like, no, 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 this is too much. You've done something so <laughs> monstrous that I can't even stand to be here. And so he literally like 
hightails it and he's like <laughs> i'm out peace out <laughs> and um then we kind of continue on the story so that's the origin of, of you know Scylla and charybdis because then those whirlpools that she she was in turns out to be charybdis eventually of course so this story this entire story i should mention is being told by Macareus. And Macareus is one of, um, actually one of Odysseus's crew, who huh. then ends up like giving directions to Aeneas as he's going to Rome. So that's how we get this entire story. So then he tells, you know, he recounts the rest of it and how, you know, um, Odysseus and the crew end up in all their travels. And we get this like mini Odyssey that's like, you know, one short story long so he comprises the entirety of like books like i think it's like books 7 to 11 in like <laughs> about a couple of hundred lines which in itself is his own feat um and we get this like a bridged version of the odyssey that's like hold on a second is this actually the odyssey or this is the bootleg odyssey <laughs> <laughs> and then we get to where he meets cersei so where odysseus meets cersei and Odysseus, his oh, well, his men, obviously, as he gets sends them in, she turns them into pigs, and the description that is absolute it's like chef's kiss. It's perfect because what it describes is that she's taking away their voices, and so Macareus, um, is like he was um turned in the storyline. He's turned into a pig, mm. so then describes his own voicelessness. And it's one of the only descriptions in the Odyssey where we get not only the story of like human to animal metamorphosis, but animal to human. And that's mm. why the story is often quite picked up by, you know, um, other classical commenters, because it's one of the only iterations we get of, OK, this person was an animal, but now they're coming back to human. And the way that Ovid yeah. describes it is just kind of like, oh, I, I wanted to speak to say like, oh, I'm so glad that I'm a human again. And I couldn't because I was just so filled with grief from the entirety of the experience. And it's like you get this kind of PTSD kind of like experience through Macarius's eyes. Yeah. And I think like um, my my favorite part of that is when she. Um, so we always assume from the Odyssey that like, you know, she just spent a whole year like having sex with him um, and just having like having a jolly old time. But the way that she, but the way she describes it, well, the way Ovid describes it is as um, a marriage. So she takes him in to the Thalamos. So like literally the marriage bed. Um, mm. So it's just kind of like pseudo wedding. And it's the way she kind of twists law here and twists the idea of marriage. And, and this kind of like um, harkens back to what I was saying at first with the, the marriage laws, because these witches, if you see, if you go back to the Medea really quickly, they constantly are seeking marriage. It's not just, you know, I'm just going to have a little fling. I'm going to have live my life, enjoy myself, you know, hot girl summer. <laughs> it's not that. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's literally, I want to marry you. You should marry me. And with the, Glauca's story again what she says is I want marriage with you with Odysseus again she wants marriage and with the next story that follows she again seeks marriage it's never just okay you know she's gonna have a little bit of fun it's a commitment here that's being made and being searched for and every single time these women 
who seek marriage are rejected because of their monstrosity. Hmm. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billings, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. So the final story of Cersei in book 14 is uh, with Picus. And it's the origin of story of um, how we get the woodpecker. Oh. Um, so Picus is in love with this girl called Cannons. And, you know, everything's going perfectly fine until he accidentally runs into Cersei's grove. And Cersei sees him and falls in love with him instantly. 
And she's like, okay, so you're going to marry me, right? Third time lucky. (laughs) And he's like, nope, I'm in love with cannons. And she's like, you know, pissed as per usual. (laughs) And was like, you know what? If you're not going to marry me, then I'm going to like turn you into a woodpecker. And then his men follow after him and are like, "Um, so where's our king? (laughs) And this, I spent like a good two hours just looking at this line. But they say that she recited curses and spoke magic words, worshipping unknown gods with unknown incantations. Right. So at first I was like, oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. That's fine. It's fine. And then I looked up what word he used for unknown. And Mm. you could believe my excitement when he used the word ignoto. So that word is usually like when you look at commentaries, they say, oh, just translate it as unknown or unfamiliar. But the etymology of that word means foreign. So she's speaking to foreign gods here. She's speaking, you know, with a foreign language, a foreign, um, uh, well, Ovid likes to use the word karmina when he speaks of witches as they're they're conducting their spells, they're singing it. Mm. So she's literally singing a foreign song, speaking these to, to these foreign gods and her magic words. And that's what brings in ethnicity here for me. It's the fact that not only is she, you know, quite close to Rome, but not, she's not really Sicilian. She's something else because she Mm -hmm. comes from the gods because she's a descendant of the gods. But she's also speaking a language that isn't, you know, that isn't Roman. It's not Latin. It's not Greek. It's completely foreign. And that's what lets her transform um, Picus. It's what lets her do all of this um so that's you know it's a it's a fun line (laughs) yeah so we've got these two like quote-unquote barbarian witches like spread throughout and causing all this trouble oh I love that it's so great I'm not gonna lie I've literally I've spent months writing about this and I there's just more every time I sit down I'm like oh you know what I think I thought of everything that I could do and I just keep finding more um which is fun we love it. <laughs> yeah. Can I tell um, you something I just thought of with all of this? Yeah. Of um, so one thing that's never really occurred to me, and this is why I love conversations because it just makes you think about things in a different way. Like I just, it's great. Um, so I've never really thought about why Aetes and Medea are, are like from Colchis. And then I'm thinking of now like in association with Circe as well. Like it's always felt weird to me that these children of Helios, these children of like a major Titan God are barbarians are not Greeks. Um, And now it seems like I'm not, I'm sure this is obvious to some, or maybe I'm, you know, intentionally discrediting myself, but like it's where the sun is from. (laughs) Like they're coming from the East. And so they're seeing the sun rise in the East and and like therefore we get these eastern gods and i've just never thought about it this way now i'm like i feel like this was obvious but maybe it's not i'm gonna take it as not but i'm now i'm just it's like running through my brain of like we've got these eastern gods these quote-unquote barbarian gods but really it's just because the sun is literally in the east now i'm obsessed with insane that's so smart (laughs) it's so fun right like that's so how did I not think about that? <laughs> I just, I it's 
and now I'm like, oh my God, like it's so interesting. Like, of course they're from Colchis. It's literally the East. The sun comes up. Obviously they're over there. That means they can't be Greek because the sun isn't in Greece. That's so smart. Like genuinely. <laughs> I I had never thought of that. that I'm so glad. I'm beautiful. so glad because I think of it and I'm like, is this a thing that everybody already realizes? So I'm very glad that it's not. I never thought of that. I just was like, oh, you know, they're connected. And it's like, I, I never well, thought of that. Yeah, because I I think it all comes down to like the thing that runs through my whole podcast, which is that like we are modern people who live in this modern world with a modern understanding of a modern understanding of storytelling and narrative structure. And so we often like attribute these types of things to like well that was just like a story decision like it was just like a narratological decision to to like make Aetes the king of Colchis because like okay he's from over there or what have you like whoever was first writing that story we think we just they wanted to do that and it's like no that they never wrote stories like we write stories there's always a reason for something it's never just like a random choice to put somebody somewhere and it's like in hindsight, like obvi- obviously it's not a random choice to put these explicitly like important Greek deities in not Greece. Like obviously there's a reason for it. Anyway, yeah, it's kind of like very excited saying, by this. Kind of tension of distance. Um, yeah. Where it's like, oh, you know, they're very close to us. Like we're literally reading these texts. They're like right in front of us, but they're also far away, which makes it safe. Um, so it's kind of like messing with that little bit of tension and pulling and tugging here. Yeah. And when, then we get to like, look at why, like what it means that they're Eastern. So then it's like an examination of like what you're talking about. Cersei being like, not Greek, even though she's Greek, you know, and, and Medea being not Greek and like, okay, well, if they're explicitly these Eastern deities, just by nature of the sun rising in the East, then then how do we navigate that? Well, Cersei gets to speak this foreign language and, and Medea gets these barbarian tendencies. And oh, it's so interesting. It's very fun. I'm not going to lie. I do really, really enjoy just like spending my hours. I'm like, oh, well, I could have written a whole paragraph or I can figure out why this one reference from Ovid is relevant. Like there's one particular reference uh, when Medea is like going across um, the Mediterranean of the Telkinets and I was like hold on a second who are they I was like never heard of them before yeah. in my life um so I was like you know what I'm going to figure out why he put those in and who the hell are the Telkinets so I was like you know what first things first <laughs> get the commentary out it's got the commentary out and they're like oh it's a reference to an ancient race of magic users and I was like hmm. what I was like okay that sounds cool then I go a little bit deeper then I go a little bit deeper and I I'm like okay where did he get that name from like I'm gonna just type it into Google and then I see Callimachus and I'm like Callimachus you mean the same Callimachus that inspired a whole bunch of Ovid and his short poetry so I was like "Mm, let's read some Callimachus then Callimachus then tells me that the Telkinids were like an ancient evil race of magic users who basically did something to the gods we don't know what they did something to the gods and they were essentially destroyed like wiped off the face of the planet because they offended the gods um which if you think about it a lot of connotations and relations to Medea then 
Because, like, yes. if we've got this ancient race of magic users literally wiped off of the place of the earth because they disrespected the gods, and Medea's done so twice in her story by with Cupid and Hecate, then I don't know. I see links. Yeah. I see links. <laughs> well, well, not to mention, like, though it's not necessarily explicit in in the versions of Medea we have, but like her her killing. I guess just mostly her killing her children. So like that Euripidean idea is like inherently the worst thing you can do, right? Like if, if anything's going to bring the furies down on you, it's killing a family member. So we don't have versions where she gets, you know, chased by the furies, but like you can presume that it happened. So you even got like in, in you've got that, those explicitly angry in the gods, er, uh, Cupid and, and Hecate. And then, and then like, it, not so explicit but certainly the number one thing the gods are going to punish you for of like killing your family members exactly and like yeah. um just to continue on my my rabbit hole i then mm. started thinking i got like a little footnote and the footnote was to strabo and i was like what Ooh. what does strabo have to do with this so i literally went on a rabbit hole through like from latin to greek back to latin and then I went to Strabo and I was like, hold on a second. Why am I being redirected to Strabo? And turns out not only did this race, you know, disrespect the gods, but they were also rivals to, um, they were also rivals to Callimachus. And I was like, how can they be magic users and rivals? Well, the first poem in, um, in Callimachus's, I think it's his Aetia is basically called against the telkines where he literally says you know i hate these people because they hate my short poetry and apparently they've like mm. complained for years about how short his poetry is and he's like well my poetry needs to be short because i'm not going to write volumes and volumes and i was like okay cool 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 but then i'm what like a weird complaint i love that exactly they're like i don't like it i want epics and i'm like me too but like let the man write his poetry um <laughs> And I was like, what does this have to do with Medea? And I just had, I sat down with it for days and I was like, what does this have to do with Medea? Why has he mentioned them? And then I remembered who also writes short poetry? Ovid. Okay. So who also uses magic? Medea. Who, so he's basically saying that just like the Telkines are rivals to Callimachus I've got my own rival and my rival is not only any old race of magic users it's Medea herself and not only I know and not only is it Medea herself it is Medea who is currently riding all across Greece has killed like four people by this point um and she's a better rival than you and also she can sing her own songs so it's not even like she is just um you know this figure who just wields magic she also uses Carmina in the same way mm. that Ovid does but her her Carmina is one that causes monstrosity while his Carmina is one where you know he can change forms like he does he says at the beginning of the metamorphosis so he's rivaling Callimachus here by modeling a kind of literary rival throughout his yeah. story and that literary rival are the witches that he put in the Met. And it's like, it's this whole full circle moment. And it's like, I spent three days on this and I didn't sleep. 
I don't know. There's so many in that little passage of her like riding across the Aegean. Like there's mm-hmm. so many little stories that's like, oh, this is a random offhand story that relates to someone killing their family member. And I'm like, mm-hmm. huh, wonder why he put mm-hmm. that there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of like you, you get these little rabbit holes when you see Ovid and he's he mentions so many things offhand. And I first I was just like, oh, he's just doing this to show off. So like saying like, you know, I've got like a whole storybook in my head, like <laughs> gang gang. <laughs> so at first it's like, okay, that's fine. And then I'm like, hold on a second. He wouldn't just put that there for nothing. Like he said, like, there's no reason why he would put that there and fill up the, you know, the meter of like his lines for nothing. So once you dig deep into those references, you get anecdotes that relate to the main story. And it's just, it's a whole full circle oh. moment. It's great. I just want to read so much more of the Metamorphoses. I, uh, I'm i like, oh my God, I, I don't know nearly enough now. I, I'm obsessed with it. Especially what I love about Ovid is, you know, we've mm-hmm. been talking today about two Greek, like mainly about two Greek witches here inherited by like, you know, from Greece. He is essentially write, rewriting these stories um, as his own kind of fan fiction of like mm-hmm. what he wants to happen and how he wants to perceive these witches um, who kind of lie on the extremes of femininity and of ethnicity as well. So what I'm kind of mainly focused on is how we can view them as intersectional beings who are being discriminated in this text, who are being portrayed in a very specific way that kind of makes us not want to like them and why that might be. Yeah. Well, a metamorphosis is so great for like you're saying fan fiction because it really it's like he's doing his own whole thing like these it, it it is a roman source, he's coming at it as a roman, but at the same time like 90% of the stories in there are explicitly greek. So he but he doesn't have the same connection and he doesn't have the same like skin in the game, I guess, as as like the greek authors writing these or or not even writing but like you know putting them to paper after after so many years or d- generations of oral storytelling like those people were coming at them as like this is our history and culture this is our like whole world whereas then Ovid comes in and he's kind of like I can do whatever I want with this because it isn't my history it isn't my culture like I can look at it in however in whatever way I want and that's kind of why I love him his stories are so like visceral and they're just they're just so interesting his versions not to mention I think that he actually like is interested in in examining trauma particularly like sexual trauma amongst the gods and things in a way that no other author tends to really like be into but oh I just I'm so thrilled to be having this be like revolving entirely around the metamorphoses. It's something that like I haven't gone back to that text in too long now, and I'm realizing that. And I'm like, okay, like how so, how can I dive back in? Because yeah. I first read it in translation. I first read everything in translation. Um, I mean, I don't I, I don't know Latin or Greek, so no judgment there. <laughs> it's taken me a hot moment, and I'm still on the journey. But I will get there eventually. Eventually, I will be so fluent in Latin and Greek that I will just be able to just interchangeably use it in everyday conversation. Oh, I but love it's that. taking a moment because, like you know, not, not everyone easy. grows up knowing 
Latin and Greek and studies it in school like that's not a thing and we need to break out of the norms of of expecting that of people as well um so what I was gonna say was that (laughs) Um, I first read it on translation and so in translation a lot of this these details are omitted they're not really like mm. brought in because they're either it doesn't fit the, the natural flow of the storyline like these references don't really help the natural flow and they're not as important to what we're trying to get to which is the main overarching storyline mm-hmm. so they're usually omitted or if they're mentioned then they're like offhand lines that don't really make much sense um, so when you go back to the Latin and you look at it and you're like, this is a completely different text. <laughs> this is mm. not what I read. <laughs> um, like, for example, a really good example of that actually is when in mm. Medea's soliloquy, when she essentially starts talking about why she should go for Jason, because she's kind of tossing and turning between the two options. She kind of spends a hot moment just going, well, you know what? why would I want to stay in Colchis anyways? Why would I want to stay in this barbarian land where there's no art and there's no culture and like where, um, you know, I would be so much better off in Greece anyways. And it's like, it comes from this very colonialist standpoint, if you look back at it, mm. from like saying like, you know, barbarian culture doesn't have anything to give us except people like Medea. You know, otherwise we've got, you know, arts and culture of Greece and why would I not want to go there and I'm going to be a hero once I've saved Jason and everyone will love me and I wouldn't have ever known she said that unless I looked at the original because it doesn't Mm. specifically say that in a lot of translations of that it doesn't accurately kind of get that across of like hey this is what he's actually saying truly believe that we should get like literal translations out some of every single text even if it doesn't make sense because no it's so hard right like you yeah that's why I, I I refer to like two or three different translations with everything or I try to with everything I I cover because yeah like you're just gonna get such completely different details or like just different meaning like some just conveys it so much better so I kind of wanted to circle back around to like my my project as a whole and mm-hmm. some of the things that generally kind of like why, you know, kind of why I got here to this point, because I never actually like properly had like a module on witches in the ancient world or anything like that. So my my journey towards doing witches and intersectionality in the ancient world is a bit of a roundabout one. Um, so because okay this is a podcast and no one can actually see me (laughs) I am a a black woman I'm also queer um so I have like a very unique experience um in when looking at the ancient world especially because I was when I first studied classics was told that I would never find anyone like me in the ancient world which just isn't true what I know (laughs) I know. That's I was also told there was no black people in the ancient world, and that's just Jesus not H. True. Christ. No, exactly. My God. Like, <laughs> and yeah. so no black people. You... Egypt was super white. I don't know what you're talking about. Exactly. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> that so coming into like studying classics um, was truly an experience of not seeing myself and wanting to, and mm-hmm. kind of saying, you know what, this can't be right. 
I'm going to find it and I'm going to seek out something that resembles how I feel about my own experiences because, you know, why not? And um, then in the third year of my undergrad, I like we did this like uh, course on contemporary approaches and it was one of the best things because I could, could see the modules like coming up, like the um, the like what we're going to study. And intersectional theory, I think, was like week three. And I was like, hold on a second. What's that? Because <laughs> like the first couple of weeks were on the sublime. So I was actually like, OK, you know what? I, <laughs> I, I can get with that. I know what that is. But what the hell is intersectional theory? And why have I not heard of it before? Um, and we spent like a whole lesson just like d- going over like um, Audre Lorde, Kimberly Crenshaw mm-hmm. um, and kind of like why people who have multiple different um, marginalizing factors or experiences are then kind of marginalized in social contexts. Um, and from that, I was like, we can use that in classics. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> and then I was like, hold on a second. I'm going to do something with this. <laughs> um, and then my master's came around because I couldn't use it by that point for my undergrad dissertation. So I was like really sad about it. Um, because by that point I had already had a full formed um, project which ended up being on feminism in general but it was like I can't really make a detour right now so then masters came around and I was like I'm gonna use that theory because that sounds great Um, and I dug my heels into that and I absolutely loved it and I did it on um, Plautus's Poenulus which is a Mm. very understudied text (laughs) Um, so if anyone listening to this wants to do something on Plautus and his Poenulus I'm very happy if you do (laughs) Um, but essentially it's about um, it's a Carthaginian text um, in which like Plautus talks about um, how these women are from Carthage who got kidnapped and then their dad comes to save them and they end up in Greece somehow and then they get saved and then they're like oh hold on a second I'm not a female slave anyways I was actually a freeborn woman and so you get like loads of different um experiences in that and identities in it in which you've got like a female slave who's from North Africa who is very characteristically um like probably of a dark skin tone as well who's being talked about on the Roman stage (laughs) during the Punic Wars. And it's an amazing text of like layers of different ethnicities and identities. And it's very fun. (laughs) And honestly, one of my favorite texts, um, because reading it is one very funny because it's comedic text, um, but also really entertaining how you see you know um expressions of gender and sexuality and ethnicity portrayed because we are talking about prostitutes here literally like you know um procuring themselves out on stage um in front of the roman audience after the second punic war um so very beautiful layers there um and then i did that and my projects on that loved it and i was like hold on a second I could write more about intersectional experiences in the ancient world. And I was like, but what would I do it on? And I was like, hold on a second. Let me think back to my undergrad dissertation, which was literally on feminist views of and how we can perceive classics. And I did like um, a whole section on witches in it and, and how we can see witches as like the utmost ex- um, kind of versions of monstrosity and like women mm-hmm. becoming like a necessary evil for Rome. So then I went back to that and I was like, I can do something with that. 
that looks good. Mm-hmm. And so I started my um, my PhD thinking I was going to do a project very generally on all intersectional experiences in imperial Latin literature. And then like, obviously, when you go through a PhD, you narrow and you narrow until you get to something mm-hmm. that you're like, I can write like 100,000 words on this. And um, I was like, hold on a second. I just want to talk about witches because there's something here and it's incredibly interesting, but I don't see a lot of people talking about it in the way that I'm talking about it. And Mm -hmm. I think I can, I think I could write a hundred thousand words on it and kind of like getting to this point where I see these really specific experiences of where ethnicity and gender and um, often sexuality kind of come to play and kind of, without using the word but intersect again (laughs) um Mm -hmm. over different kind of barriers of being marginalized but also being powerful in their marginalization and their power Mm -hmm. being a driving force for us to see their marginalization um it really interested me but also it felt like I was kind of drawing a kind of personal connection to an experience that I could resonate with so um yeah (laughs) I I love that. That's so I mean it's just powerful, but like it it reminds me so much of of how much I've learned from doing this show because you you know even just saying like in your undergrad learning like or the suggestion that there's no one, you know, who looks like you or has a similar experience like in the ancient world is like so wild but also so widespread. Like we have this whole idea of this like whiteness that's been put upon the ancient world in I mean for obvious like western supremacy reasons but then as soon as you like start looking at it with any kind of critical eye it's like I mean it it just ends up being so obviously ridiculous um I mean it it, uh, the the interactions that what I'm most interested in lately is like the the interactions across the whole Mediterranean in the east in North Africa like the fact that in these stories we have like not only Egypt but Libya and Ethiopia like all these regions of North Africa that would have obviously had people with a darker skin tone and they're all interacting across the whole Mediterranean world and it's like it seems to me it's such an like it's such an obvious thing that obviously people had all you know were were of all these different varying skin tones but then at the same time looking at like the ways in which Greece and certainly Rome um, were also like super bigoted in their own way. And it was like, not necessarily about skin tone, but it was like all about all these other things where it's like, everyone has been problematic forever, but just like the level, the ways in which these things are an issue has varied so much. Like that alone is, is so fascinating. And I think it's really important to, to talk about generally and, and like, and bring up in this way, but, but the witches specifically being, being othered in that way like I have I have seen the connection in Roman witches of the way that they the Roman witches to me feel very anti-woman but but looking at Ovid's more specifically because I don't think I've I don't think the 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 conversations I've had or the thoughts that I've had on this have have touched on Ovid's because Ovid's feel so Greek that it's almost like they don't count but then but exactly everything you're saying it's like no they count in like their own way like they're they're Greek witches, but he still romanizes them in that very specific way. Yeah, and I think, um, like, even just kind of understanding what my hope is, that through understanding the ways in which we see these imperial witches, we can start to unveil and uncover some of the ways that real Roman witches were perceived in Rome. 
So how does a person who, you know, uses medicine or magic navigate their ethnicity and their gender and their sexuality and age through the ancient world? And of course, like ability runs into it as well. How does um, someone who perhaps is, uh, you know, for example, someone from North Africa who is a slave, but is also someone who uses magic, um, like how are they perceived? How are they differentiated and treated in Rome? How can we see that? Is it does it correlate to the literature? Does the literature tell us about that? And that's the most for me at least that's the most interesting thing. The fact that behind every single one of these these very fictional, very literary, very mythical characters we see in text, there most likely is a real person that existed who shares some of those qualities. And we can see and evaluate how, if we can't see how evaluate how they were treated, like, you know, literally, because we don't have the sources for that, we can see how people who share those characteristics are treated in text. Hmm. Hmm. Oh yeah, I love the idea of the real people behind it, especially in Rome, because like again, I don't have the greatest knowledge, but like I know the Carthage of it all, and so it, like just that alone, they have such an interesting relationship with Carthage but I'm sure that also meant that there were a lot a lot of enslaved people from Carthage and so you have that like inherently North African like enslaved population and what that would mean because they also probably had like a very specific or different at least relationship to magic or or witchcraft or or like um basically like early forms of medicine but would if if they were doing it in a way that it's like inherently so different from Rome, then Rome is immediately going to see it as witchcraft, particularly if a woman is doing it. And if a foreign woman is doing it, it's like, it's inherently witchcraft in a way that is sort of in itself fascinating. Yeah. And I think it just draws back to the overarching and like huge debate of what is magic? What is religion? How do we characterize that? Um, Does it have anything to do with where or what that magic is? are we talking about Mm. someone's magic that was someone else's religion that is just too different from what we perceive as normal um so that's also something that I'm going to be spending a good 10,000 words talking about (laughs) yeah well when you have more on like the real people behind it if you do or any of that oh my god come back on certainly for anything but also like that's (laughs) fascinating just thinking about the the real people it reminds me I don't know if you listened to the episode I did with Christy Vogler who um, is looking at witchcraft and medicine yeah that one was so fascinating too because it it's so it touches on that like in a way where it's like if a woman was doing it it was witchcraft and if a man was doing it it's medicine and like that alone is so interesting but adding the like then the the issues of of like foreign and and like the intersecting of of like the different regions and things even on top of that would be extra interesting and you know what's really funny is that when you mentioned that it just reminded me that in Ovid's Met with Medea there is a part in it where she tells Jason what herbs to use and what words to say but Mm. he's not a magician only Medea is Medea is the sorcerer but Jason isn't even when he uses the exact same tools that she does um yeah it's like that's really saying something it's really like perpetuating that connection between female magic and male medicine 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, especially with Jason, it like really is just like salt in the wound too, right? Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> hate that guy. <laughs> oh, I mean, God, who doesn't? Who doesn't? He's just ridiculous. Oh, I I'm so fascinated with all of this. Like, I I just hadn't realized how. I mean, I know Madea is always seen as like a quote unquote barbarian, but the idea that Cersei becomes that as well in Ovid, and the then the inherent link that has two witches is brand new information and i'm kind of obsessed with it now well i've got um when i eventually finish my phd fingers crossed um you will be one of the first people i send it to oh (laughs) please and just come right back on the show and tell me everything else that you've learned since then and we'll have a great time (laughs) (laughs) it'll be super fun as well because i would have then not only one finished so i can finally like exhale um (laughs) I would have done like other text as well, probably mm-hmm. uh, fingers crossed, hopefully um, drawn some other connections um, because I can almost tell that I'm going to have a lot of fun um, comparing uh, Seneca's Medea and Ovid's oh, yeah. because yeah. Seneca does something very different with Medea. He takes he doesn't take the Euripidean version at all. Um, he essentially takes Ovid's and he's like, I can make it more bloody. <laughs> and it is the most gruesome thing <laughs> because he, he's literally like he talks about childbirth and and the womb and how that she's like giving up her children and it's kind of like this weird sensation of the foreigner being at the center of the household because she's a woman who's literally at the head of the household she's the you know the the mater and the, the family and family but she's also the one who's going to kill her children and it's just this beautiful little juxtaposition that goes throughout his his um, entire play so definitely something you should read if you haven't I know I was just gonna say I know I I know I should read Zeneca's Medea and it's like I always it's, it's on my list but I always forget it's there until somebody mentions it and then I'm like shit I really really want to read that but I just I need to read more Rome more Roman literature generally yeah hopefully we can keep you on the urban side for a little bit <laughs> oh, i know we'll see i just keep getting drawn right back to the greek you know well there's so much good things in greece though there are so many good exactly. things. exactly exactly i'm fucking obsessed now with ovid's metamorphoses and specifically medea and circe and like now i'm thinking i'm trying to think of like how how i can a- accompany this episode like with like a deeper retelling of those parts of metamorphoses. Specifically those two witches in Ovid, like people often go straight to like the Herodes or go straight to the mm-hmm. uh, cures for love when they're trying to find like Ovidian versions of Medea and Circe. But in the Met itself, it's just so great. And I, I know I've gushed about it for like almost an hour and a half now, but it, there's so much. And I feel like I barely hit like, the top tip of the iceberg there's so much it's just yeah I I had no idea and that actually reminds me um just hearing you talk about Medea in Metamorphoses is so interesting when you compare it to Heroides it's been a while since I read that Heroides but like it always felt very sympathetic to her to me like it's very anti-Jason and pro Medea, and I is she very witchy in that? I feel like she's not. She's very human in the Heroides. Yeah, I think almost because of the kind wrong? of writing from her perspective, that might right slightly change things because it's like, of course, you're going to be sympathetic towards yourself. 
Um, yeah. But then the difference is like in the Met is that he's telling the story, which is very rare for the Met where like, you know, the, the stories are usually told by someone else. Someone else is mm-hmm. telling this. But Ovid himself tells Medea's story. He tells us exactly how monstrous he thinks she is and exactly how horrifying he is. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that says it itself in itself all, all we need to know. Yeah, that's so true. Oh, I love that. Oh, it's just all so interesting. Fucking ancient sources. They're so fun. <laughs> this has been so interesting and so much fun. Thank you so much for doing this. I have really enjoyed it. I was like very like, this is the first podcast I've ever done. So podcast virgin here. Um, and and I've had so much fun. Like genuinely, I have had so much fun just being able to just talk and like all the cool things that I found that may not wake its way to my like final piece. And it's just, it's nice. And I don't have anything good to plug. So follow me on Twitter. <laughs> Uh, nerds. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you didn't already guess, we recorded this episode back before I'd started reading Ovid's Metamorphoses to you all on the podcast, because here I am ranting about how I haven't been deep enough into that source lately. I'm not saying this conversation was the inspiration, but it, it, it basically was. I just wish I could have gotten to the bit where Medea and Cersei appear by now in the reading, but those are books 7 and 14, so we've got some time to go. Still, Metamorphoses. I am obsessed. Huge thank you to Antonia for joining me on this episode. It was seriously so much fun. And now I'm going to think about Helios and his children living where the sun rises from in the east just for the rest of time. Even if I might have forgotten that revelation until just now when I edited the episode, because there's seriously so much information in my brain, there's no room for any more. I am all filled up. You can follow Antonia on Twitter. Uh, I realize I didn't get her actual handle in time, but it is in the episode's description anyway this was so fun i love witches going to watch hocus pocus 2 now i think let's talk about myths baby is written and produced by me Liv albert michaela smith is the hermes to my olympians and handles so many podcast related things from running the youtube to creating promotional images and videos to editing and research and now patreon things too stephanie foley works to transcribe the podcast for youtube captions and accessibility the podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. help me continue bringing you the world of greek mythology and the ancient mediterranean by becoming a patron where you will get bonus episodes and more visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description you are super cool thank you for listening please keep it up i am Liv, and i love this shit snag a job is where america goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over six million active hourly workers Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. 
Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day savings event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billings, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com.